Welcome to The Slow Way, a podcast about the slow goodness of pursuing a sacred love that transforms everything, including you and me. I'm Micah Boyette, and I am a recovering frantic one, learning the goodness of rest, of prayer, and the miracle of going slow in a world that tells us our worth is found in our speed, success, or power. In the story we tell ourselves, life feels outside of us, something we're desperately chasing. But in the quiet, I think we know what's real, that the true thing is deep down underneath the surface where love lives. And sometimes we just have to stop long enough to notice. I'm grateful you're here making space to be reminded. This is episode 40, true all the way through. Let's go the slow way. In 2011 and 2012, for just 10 months, Chris and I lived with our two older boys in Austin, Texas. Despite its tiny blip in the story of our family, We have a lot of memories from that season. The spot in our living room where we danced with our babies. The garden in the back where we grew tomatoes and where the seesaw airplane sat in the yard. Brooksy's first steps, August's first soccer game, the friends who came to our house, the words I wrote from the desk in our bedroom, and our church. Our church in Austin was special. Before we moved back to San Francisco, our pastor Cliff and his wife Christine invited us over. The walls of their kitchen were covered with butcher paper signs, poetry and quotes all written in Christine's handwriting, a mom decor hack I've copied ever since. Christine was folding laundry on the floor while the four of us sat in their living room and chatted. We were telling them about why we were leaving why Chris's job had changed directions and was sending us back to San Francisco. There was a sense that our relationship with them was only a moment in time. Our life back in SF was established. We had friends and a church and a community waiting for us. This hour in their living room was simply a chance to say thank you or goodbye or both. I don't remember what we talked about except for one moment in a conversation that had gone where I love for conversations to go. Jesus and meaning and what faith is, even if it's braided together with doubt. Christine was holding a kid-sized t-shirt in one hand and pointing her finger into the air with the other. If it's true, she said as she looked at me, it has to be true all the way through. She was talking about Jesus, this faith she and I had both given our lives to. She wasn't talking about literal or historical evidence. She wasn't talking about some concrete sign of proof. She was talking about us. If this story is true in us, she was saying, if Jesus is true in us, then it has to be true all the way through our stories, our experiences our way of being in the world. 
I think I only connected with Christine once or twice after that day, but I left her house holding that moment. And 10 years later, I cling to it still. True all the way through. What does it mean to give our lives to more than an idea? What does it mean for faith to coexist with doubt, but not be squishy or easily shaken? For us to allow it to settle in the deepest parts of us so that it lives there sturdy and true, without pretense, without anything false. How do we hold a faith robust enough to reach the parts of us that are hardest to know, most painful to explore? I finished reading Parker Palmer's lovely book, Let Your Life Speak, this week and thought about Christine's words when I read his description of the work of traveling, quote, all the way down through our inner darkness. This is the work of the spiritual life, Palmer says. We have to be brave enough to, quote, ride certain monsters all the way down, explore the shadows they create, and experience the transformation that can come. I have walked through two major seasons of debilitating anxiety in my life. The most recent was five years ago when Ace was two and my older boys were elementary aged. I lived between the longing to give Ace's brothers a typical childhood and a constant fear that Ace's health and development were dependent on my actions and knowledge. One of my older sons struggled with school and friendships and difficult behaviors, and I felt unable to hold his needs and aces at the same time. Like I was a loose plastic grocery bag flung along the road, being carried by the wind wherever I was blown. I was tossed around by my circumstances until my body began to rebel with terrifying panic attacks. When your brain lives in panic, eventually your body catches up. What were my monsters? I was terrified that Ace would die. I was terrified that he'd never talk unless I picked the exact right intervention. I was terrified that I didn't have the strength of mind or heart to give my older son what he needed. I was overwhelmed by the necessary demands of our daily life. I wanted my older boys to have sports and friends and after-school activities, but often I felt like they only had Ace's doctor and therapy appointments. I was tired. Then Ace developed a strange rash on his chest. While his brothers were at school, I carted him to the pediatrician and lifted his shirt for her eyes. She touched his skin where the rash didn't blanch. It wasn't a rash at all. It was broken blood vessels, petechiae, a sign of something much more dangerous, like blood cancer. Before Ace was born, I took a lay counseling class at church, a nine-month intensive, where I learned about the basics of reflective listening, understanding mental health disorders, and discussing the Enneagram, and why we humans are often motivated in very different ways. And I remember one particular conversation about anxiety, where my friend Johnny, the therapist who taught the class, explained how sometimes the only way to move through an anxious thought is to write it all the way down. We have to watch the possible outcomes as awful as they could be 
because we need to know that there is something at the bottom of the worst possible scenario. That day, the pediatrician sent Ace and I immediately to have his blood taken and tested. My body shook as I pushed his stroller the four blocks from the pediatric office to the medical center. I held his tiny two-year-old back against my chest and lifted his arm toward the needle, singing in his ear as the blood flowed from his vein into a medical tube. And after he finished crying, his arm wrapped in a purple bandage, I pushed him back to the car, buckled him in his seat, and cried all the way home. We always drove through Golden Gate Park in those days, from the Richmond where school and most of our doctor's appointments were, to the sunset on the other side, where our house set on a long gray block of concrete pressed in on all sides by dozens of houses. Richmond concrete to sunset concrete, but in between was forest. Golden Gate Park is almost three miles long in a peninsula city that's only seven miles wide. And inside that park is an entire world of nature. The bison in Golden Gate Park roam on a patch of land just between the elementary school my kids attended and our home. And that day, 10 minutes into the drive, I pulled the car over beside the bison and sobbed. What if my baby had cancer? What if he died? I remember Johnny saying that sometimes the only way through the anxiety is to write it all the way down. So I breathed there in the car, my baby in the back seat. I breathed and asked God to help me imagine the worst possible scenario. If this was cancer, if we were walking into a story where life wasn't just hard, but impossible, where I spent my days caring for a toddler on chemo and then tried to play with his brothers at night, where our time and money poured into the care of this little one we loved. If this was the worst horror of my life and it was happening now, if Chris and I might lose our son and my older boys might be left to grieve their brother, what was true then? I didn't have an answer that day, but I let myself go all the way down. Would you still be there, Lord? Would you still love me all the way at the bottom of that particular story? Later, the hematologist would pronounce him to be a little mystery body with rare bouts of petechiae, a strange reality we've experienced several times since. Our story was easier than so many others whose babies entered the oncology unit and suffered in a way our little guy never had to. I didn't have to learn the lesson of the pediatric cancer ward, but there was still a lesson sealed in me. I had lived my life terrified to confront the reality of the very worst thing that could happen. But what if I stopped pushing against it and instead let myself walk it all the way down? Each monster a reminder that life is impossible and even so, as Mart Scandrett says when he paraphrases Romans chapter 8, quote, nothing can separate you from what is most essential to your well-being. If the love of God is true, it has to be true all the way through, all the way down to the bottom, 
where the monsters dwell. If your life belongs to the loving creator, it still belongs there where everything else has been lost. It is a risk to believe not only in the goodness of Jesus's teaching, but also that the presence of the cosmic Christ is real, alive, and is offering me the love I need to survive everything that might be. Belief is the elevator ride down to the bottom of our inner landscape. Belief is only the first step we take toward the journey of the spiritual life. Then we follow the monsters all the way down and explore what happens if all that's left is, quote, what is most essential to our well-being. I can't answer the question of what exactly that means. Martin Laird describes contemplative prayer as a process that deepens. And as it does, quote, it will unblock things that are getting in the way. Some of these things that we would rather not see. We meet our self-centeredness. We meet our wounds, our flaws, our faults. But at the depths of it, if you look deeply enough into your own wounds, you see not your own face, but the face of God, end quote. We're invited to go all the way down, all the way through to the place where we are most terrified to meet ourselves. That's where God wants to meet us. Quote, but there one finds freedom, a fundamental peace. All hell may be breaking loose in your life or everything may be going well or some combination of the two, but there is a bedrock peace that is you, Laird says. This deep calm gives birth to love. Love at the bottom of all things, all the way through. A slow practice. Around 10 years ago, I came across a gem of a prayer book called Psalms for Young Children. It was published in 2003 and still speaks to me. Its illustrations are beautiful and haunting, and it's paraphrasing of many of the Psalms by Marie Helene Delval are able to touch the depths of feelings and questions and angst that lives so vibrantly in the songs of the scriptures. Today, I'd love for us to practice Lectio Divina, which means sacred reading, by sitting with a very simple paraphrasing of Psalm 69. Of course, if you'd like to find Psalm 69 on your own and meditate on the, quote, adult version, you're certainly welcome to do that. But I like the idea of keeping this time simple. In the practice of Lectio Divina, the participant reads through the passage three or four times, practicing reading with the heart as opposed to the head. This is not a time for intellectual rigor. It's a time for openness, for engaging with the spirit, asking for transformation. When we practice Lectio, we read slowly with silence before and after, inviting our souls to listen in a deeper way than the ways we usually come to words. 
One way to practice Lectio Divina is in what Ruth Haley Barton calls, quote, four movements. First, we read and savor. We follow that by reflecting on what the passage might be saying to our lives. Then we look for a way to respond. The fourth movement is contemplatio, to rest in God, where we sit in the presence of the Spirit in peace and trust. I'd love for you to move through this process with me. Let's begin with savoring. Sit in silence for a moment before I read the passage aloud. Let your body become still and quiet. As I read this passage, allow yourself to settle into a place where you can hear from the words. Listen to what stands out. Maybe a word or a phrase that is louder than the rest. After reading it, allow yourself to savor that word or phrase. There's always a temptation to jump quickly into a meaning behind your attraction to that word. Try to release that need and be content to sit without making meaning from it. Here we go, Psalm 69, as paraphrased in Psalms for Young Children by Marie-Helene Delval. When I am sad, it feels like I'm underwater, like I'm stuck in the mud, or at the bottom of a dark hole. Pull me from this dark place, God. Save me. I need your help. Let's sit in silence. Now we reflect. I'm going to read this passage again. When I am sad, it feels like I'm underwater. Like I'm stuck in the mud or at the bottom of a dark hole. Pull me from this dark place, God. Save me. I need your help. As you sit in silence, think about the word or phrase that you were drawn to the first and second reading. Is there something in your life that is particularly touched by this idea or concept? Is there some wisdom you might be longing for? Let's read it for a third time. When I am sad, it feels like I'm underwater, like I'm stuck in the mud or at the bottom of a dark hole. Pull me from this dark place, God. Save me. I need your help. 
sit in silence. This time, invite the Spirit to invite or challenge you to some sort of response. Perhaps the word or phrase that has risen to the surface has allowed you to sense some hurt or anger or fear that you hadn't realized was there before. Can you acknowledge what your response has been and make some kind of step to move from there? Let yourself express whatever your response needs to be in this silence. And now, we read it one last time. When I am sad, it feels like I'm underwater, like I'm stuck in the mud or at the bottom of a dark hole. Pull me from this dark place, God. Save me, I need your help. Your invitation now is to rest in the presence of God, to come close to God and invite God to come close to you. Allow yourself to take the word or phrase you were drawn to here and carry it with you into your day and week. Let's close your time with a deep breath. Breathe in. Breathe out. Thanks for being here. Choosing a moment of quiet and allowing yourself to be slow here is a way of refusing to conform with the culture around us. Look at us. We're making space for a fuller vision of ourselves and others. Making space for wisdom, making space for love. That, friends, is no small thing. Big thanks to Valsh Leader for managing my social media, Jason Boyette for designing our slow way graphic, and the lovely Angelina Marie for editing. If you're interested in more words on the slow way, you can sign up for my newsletter at micaboyette.com. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at micaboyette and find my book found wherever books are sold. I would so appreciate it if you could take the time to review The Slow Way on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It helps people find us. Thanks for listening today. I'll be here next week. I hope you will too.